0: Hi, I'm Laura Mize, Pediatric Speech-Language Pathologist, and thank you so much for joining me for TeachMeToTalk.com's podcast. Today, we're continuing our series with the 11 pre-linguistic skills that all toddlers master before words emerge. And we are all the way up to skill number 10, which is uses gestures. But before we do that, like we do at the beginning of free show in this series we really talk about what pre-linguistic skills are and if you are just joining us for uh this is your first show in this series i'd highly encourage you to go back to the very beginning because in that very first show i talk about the emergence of all these skills and why it's so important. And like we've been doing at the beginning of all these shows, I want to run through these skills. So if you are a therapist or you are a parent joining us midway through, that you'll recognize how important these skills are to help prepare a child to begin to talk. Now, pre-linguistic just means before language. So these are the things that all kids, no matter whether they talk on time or whether they talk late, begin to do before they talk. And if any one of these skills is missing a child is at risk for a language delay and when a child has two or three missing he's certainly at more of a risk and when there are several skills missing we are really 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 concerned about that child's uh, ability to develop language and so what we have to do as therapists and as parents of light talkers or children who have another known uh, diagnosis that would Uh, lend itself to the probability that a child has a language delay or will have difficulty learning to communicate We have to set the stage. We have to establish the foundation. And sometimes that's so hard to do. You think, I want to help this child, but I'm not quite sure how. This is how. We look at the 11 prelinguistic skills that come in before talking emerges, and we teach those skills. We are very, very intentional and very purposeful about helping a child master that milestone. So let's just run through this list. And if you're a therapist and have watched this series, you'll know that I have really encouraged you to memorize this list so that you can use it when you are in assessments, or when you're in some kind of screening situation, or just when a parent's talking to you about their own child. Or after you get a child and you're sitting there and you're thinking, okay, I have the results of the standardized test, but what do I really do? What's really missing here? These are the things that are missing. So first and foremost, it reacts to events in the environment. That's that a baby is alert, that he or she knows what is going on around him, and he is she is processing that as best she can. So she's responding to things. She notices when they're light. She listens to sounds. She reacts. Now, only our children with the most significant neurological difficulties or severe sensory impairment. like hearing loss or blindness will have um, these kinds of difficulties outside of just another abnormality that's happening uh, neurologically and developmentally. So most of the time, kids are past that unless there's a known medical diagnosis. The second skill is super important. It's response to other people. Now, it always takes at least two people to communicate. So we have to teach children to respond when we talk to them. The biggest indicator when a child is not responding to other people is that he or she is at risk for autism. Autism at its core is a social interaction issue also communication problems also behavioral differences but at its core autism is different because children uh, it, it looks different in how children first begin to engage or interact with other people so when a child is not responding socially that's our number one goal we've got to get him with us and enjoying us and seeking out other people and doing everything he can to really participate and be ready to communicate and again that the first piece of that is listening and responding the third skill that we we want to look at is begins turn taking. So now he's not only responding to you; he's trying to do something back to you. So again, that interaction piece, that reciprocity, or that back and forth flow, that really is is so uh, turn taking is so integral to that. And if you're a therapist and aren't routinely practicing how to take turns, and not not just verbally but nonverbally too. Listen to that show because it's fantastic, and it's something that really has, that I have focused on these last few weeks since we did that show, and I've just seen a really dramatic turnaround in three children that I'm seeing right now because I really dove in. And said, I'm going to work on nonverbal turn-taking. And things things have gotten dramatically better for those three children. The fourth one, the fourth skill is develops a longer attention span. We have to pay attention to learn to do anything. And talking is certainly part of that. So when we have children who are very busy or on the go or as some... <sighs> Parents, or even some therapists might call hyperactive, it's way too early to really diagnose that in a toddler. But as children continue to be busy and don't learn ways to regulate and calm down, they are missing vital opportunities to learn language. So helping a child develop that longer attention span is the 4th prelinguistic skill. The fifth skill is an extension of that and it's shifting and sharing joint attention. And that just means that when you try to show a child something, if he were here and I were saying, look, my bunny, that's a bunny rabbit what would we expect him to do? We would want him to look at that when we pointed, when we said look, and when a child's not doing that, again, there's a social interaction issue. So usually those are the same kinds of kids who aren't responding consistently to other people, and it is a big marker for autism. So we have to really, really pay attention to joint attention. And again, if you have not been listening to this show or watching this show, go back and listen to skill number five about joint attention because it will make a huge difference in how you start to approach and work with and think about the little guys on your caseload. They are not ready to learn how to talk until they acquire longer pieces of their ability to uh, share that experience with you. So longer periods of joint attention. So you've got to work on that first. Sixth skill was plays with a variety of toys appropriately. Play is how all kids learn everything. Lots of, most cognitive things, emerge in the course of daily activities too. But play is where they really practice and where they really master cognitive skills, fine motor skills, social skills as they play with an adult, their parents or a sibling or another child. So many things come together and those all support the emergence of language. So play is so important for children. Skill number seven is understands early words and follows one-step directions or familiar directions. So until the child is able to understand what words mean well enough to follow directions, he is not developmentally ready to learn how to use those words to communicate. Kids have to learn to what a word means before they can say it. And in typical language development, we see this all the time. Typically developing toddlers understand much more than they can say. So when we have a child who, who isn't showing that that I understand more than I can say, and a child who um, again, is not following directions. We know that they're at significant risk for not learning how to talk. And so we have to really, really support that language development by first helping them understand what words mean and linking words to that. So receptive language is so important. So go back and listen to the show about skill number seven, if that's something that the child you were working with is struggling with. Skill number eight, <coughs> pardon me, is vocalizes purposefully. And this just means that a child understands, excuse me, let me get a drink. I've been really sick. I've been sick the whole month of February. So pardon me. I may have to do that quite frequently. But skill number eight is vocalizes purposefully. This is that a child knows he or she can intentionally control his or her voice. And none of us learns how to talk until we know how to do that. So that is skill number eight. Skill number nine is imitation. So how a child imitates not only words, but actions, gestures, and body movements, and play sounds. Those are all really important in-between steps on our way to teaching a child to imitate words. And so imitation was our last show so show number three hundred and ninety four if you 're working with a child who 's not imitating, go back and listen to that show. That brings us up to skill number ten, which we talked about is uses gestures and it 's an extension of the information in the last show in the last show, we taught children how to imitate gestures and imitate body movements and now We want them to progress and use those gestures meaningfully so that when they do this, what are they doing? What are they saying? They're telling you bye-bye. That's a representational message, and that's becoming symbolic, and that is important because symbols, words are symbols, and symbols have to emerge non-verbally first, just like we were talking about before with turn taking. You can't have verbal turn taking until we have nonverbal turn taking. Same thing with symbolic use and symbolic representation. Kids don't learn how to use words verbally to represent a message until they're doing some of that with gestures first. So gestures are such an important marker for language development. And I wanna share with you two really important pieces of evidence-based practice if you are a speech language pathologist that you just need to commit to your memory right now (laughs) because these are really, really important indicators for you and things that you can say to parents and things that you, you know this already, but when a study supports that, it's really, really important. So why are gestures an important marker for language development and a precursor to words? It's because studies say, and this is a study by Iverson and Golden Meadow, 2005, that typically developing toddlers begin to use gestures just before they learn how to talk. So within three months of a typically developing toddler showing or pointing to an object, the child learned the word for that object. So what does that tell you as a therapist? First of all, to me, it says that he paid attention to it. He noticed it. it we kind of walked through that, that progression of the 11 prelinguistic skills continuum there. He had attention to that. He noticed that. He, heard, he had good joint attention because he heard somebody else say that word. You know, Kids aren't going to just automatically generate a word for something on their own. You have to tell them. That's why them hearing adult language models are so important. And so a child had good joint attention. He listened to somebody show him the cup and say cup and he began to understand it with the receptive language connection there and then eventually we get to that other piece that he pointed to or showed that object to you which is a way that gestures emerge that showing behavior is so so important. And then within three months of that that typically developing child learned to say that word and so we need to think about that same progression or that same continuum with our late talkers they have to pay attention to it It has to be then you have to they have to have their own attention then they have to have joint attention and then they have to have the receptive language piece and then the gestural piece and then the word and we don't think about that enough even as even as speech language pathologists who do this stuff all day every day we still don't think about that progression like we should and knowing that you have to again build that attention, build that joint attention, build the receptive language, then build the gesture, then build the expressive language and that's that's such an important that's such an important scale or such an important uh, progression for us all to think about. That was the first piece that I wanted to talk to you about and again the reason that this is so important is because after a child begins to use a gesture usually he or she uh, begins to use some kind of vocalization even before we get to the real word for example, when a child's learning how to wave bye-bye, he may raise his hand and just say, uh, or I, some little vocalization, some vowel, it's not even clearly bye-bye yet, that real simple CV, CV construction, but he's vocalizing, he's doing something that marks that as, hey, this is going to be a word before too long. I'm, I'm doing something here. And so many times children will do that. And typically developing language, we see that a lot before the first birthday, around the first birthday and then even all the way up to 18 months where we start to see the gesture and then hear a word approximation and then it changes so nicely into a word that, or into a little utterance that we recognize as that word. So speech language pathologists think about gesture use as an early part of expressive language development and we place just as much importance on a child's ability to show you something and meaningfully communicate long before we start looking at what that word is, because again, that's the foundation. If you don't have that reason there to communicate, if you don't have that word, that representational message that you want to share, you're not going to talk. You've got to get that part first. That's why sometimes when therapists are kind of hyper-focused on the mouth and The musculature and making sure that children, you know, get all that, that all that's working properly. And I'm not saying that's important. I'm just saying that the cognitive piece, the brain piece, (laughs) that's what I focus on because I want to be sure children are really, really, really acquiring meaning. And so, again, that receptive language piece is so important. The next part that, um, oh, and let me say one other thing. So, when we see a child that's gesturing as a speech language pathologist, we say, aha! Expressive language is emerging. He's not to the verbal part yet, but he's getting there. He's on his way. So that's why we never worry about late talkers who are using gestures as much as we worry about their little same-age peers who are not. So when a child is not using gestures, we know that that's a big, big developmental marker and that we've got to address it because uh, expressive language is not emerging. Unless there's some kind of motoric impairment that neurologically their language centers are okay and somehow they're... um, Fine motor coordination is not what we want it to be. That would just be a really small subset of children, but otherwise, when we don't see gestures emerging, we know that there's a cognitive component, too. There's a receptive language component, too, in addition to that motor coordination piece. So we've got to pay really, really close attention to the kids that aren't gesturing because they have more significant developmental challenges. All right, so here's the second piece of evidence-based practice that I wanted to share with you about gestures. When we see a lag in a baby's ability to use and understand gestures, we just know that they are going to be a late talker. And again, research confirms that a toddler's ability to use gestures at 18 months can predict her language skills at 36 months. And that was from a study in child development in 2013. And so we talked about this last week too, same kind of information about imitation and how... A child at 18 months, both both markers at 18 months, you can take an 18-month-old toddler and if he's not gesturing and not imitating, we just know that that expressive language is going to be delayed at 36 months. If it's not, there has been a rapid progression and we are actually more surprised about the kids who aren't, uh, who don't have a language delay at 36 months when there was this obvious problem at 18 months, no imitation and no gestures. We, that's that's more of an outlier than looking at a kid at 18 months, no gestures, no imitation, and thinking, oh, there's going to be a language delay. So wanted to be sure that we are mentioning that and talking about that. So let's talk about gestures specifically. Remember, we've already said that these are body movements that communicate messages to other people. What are some examples of gestures that toddlers use? Well, the first one usually is raising their arms to be picked up. And so a mom goes into their crib early in the morning or whenever they wake up. And when mom is reaching her arms down to pick the child up, we want those little arms to shoot right up as if to say, yes, you are here for me, and I want you to pick me up. Or eventually, that's not even imitative anymore. Even you can see a baby on the, on the baby cam, that they're, they're, they want mom to come so their arms are up even before they see mom because that's the gestural equivalent of calling her and saying, pick me up, hold me, hold me. And so again, really, really important marker. And that's one of the things that you can do as a speech language pathologist is ask about that. And it's one of the easiest things to teach. Again, outside of a motor delay that again, limits a baby's uh, ability to use or toddler or preschoolers ability to use their arms purposefully and intentionally, and that strength piece is there, coordination, muscle time, whatever it is. That's something we need to be working on pretty immediately with gestures is getting them to lift their little arms, and how do you do that? Well, you just put your hands under their arms here, and you just give a little cue, a little, you know, it's almost like a little karate chop under there, and you want them, you know, picking their hands up, so that's an early, early gesture you can use. Other kinds of things, clapping at the end of a play routine, and the big ones, of course, are pointing to uh, show you when you say to them, what do you want, and they point, or, or again, they're trying to get you to have joint attention with them. They're trying to show you something by pointing, and so Great, great nonverbal way to communicate. Other important early gestures are waving bye-bye and then again shaking your head yes and no. No almost always comes before yes, but I'll tell you, I've got a darling little girl right now that's four and a half, and she has got the best little, she's nonverbal, got the best little head shake for yes that I've ever seen. She shakes her head no, but I love her because she is so positive, <laughs> and she shakes that little head yes more than she does no, and I, I just love it. I just, I'm just in love with her. She's doing great. All right, and so those are the big things that we're looking for. And so that's how you know if you're a parent and you're joining me and you're saying, I'm not really sure what she's talking about with gestures. It's things like pointing and waving and clapping and shaking your head. Anything that a child does to let you know what he means without using a word. So that's what we're talking about. And again, remember they're important because the child is connecting meaning with what he is, he is doing. And remember, I said that's becoming symbolic so that he is learning that he can do something to let you understand him. And again, it's so predictive for early language development. We research tells us time and time and time again that we see gestures emerge just before words emerge. So let's talk about then what we can do as adults, as parents, and as therapists to get gestures moving in the right direction. And remember we talked about last week how important imitation is. And if you didn't listen to that show, I would really almost encourage you to just stop this show (laughs) and go back and listen to that show because it really talks about how to teach um, imitation and you're going to need a child to be able to imitate these gestures first and we'll talk about this today but if you're still kind of at a loss for what to work on go back and listen to show number 394 and I don't think I mentioned this before every time you get a uh, you purchase as as a therapist or even as a parent but you purchase the five buck Uh, hour of continuing education for this course, you get this great handout, and it is something that you can keep and refer to over and over and over again, and I, when I'm getting ready for the show, when I'm prepping for the show, this is what I do, is I prepare the handout, because it helps me really, really, really get ready, and talk about what's important, and so I want you to be sure that you are getting that, and a lot of parents have told me that, you know, I'm a parent, I, I don't care anything about that that certificate, I just want the handout. And so we don't have a way to really do that without the credit. And so go ahead and get that. If that's something that you are really, really uh, working on with your child or with a child that you're seeing on your case, go ahead and get that continuing education. You can pop over to teach me to talk, click on my picture right there, and then it says view all ASHA courses. And then you're going to go to show number 395 and uh, get that handout. All right. So let's talk about Um, gestures and how gestures emerge. And and remember we said before that uh, babies who are four to six months old begin this process by reaching for items that their parents are holding, like they really want to reach out and touch that bottle. Or um, just anything that a parent is trying to show them. You know, you first start to see that reaching behavior. And then, uh, between six and eight months, and again, this is well before that first birthday, children do begin to reach up to be picked up, like we talked about before, or push away as kind of a rejection. And then Uh, we start to see in that 10, 11, and 12-month period that children really, really, really hone their ability to use gestures communicatively. And we talked about this by that first birthday. We want to see children using several different gestures. And when we don't, that's a big red flag too. So as a speech-language pathologist, when parents ask you about... How many words should my child be using? What should, kinds of things should he be saying? He's 18 months and blah, 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 blah. Instead of talking so much about words, go back and talk about gestures. Say, tell me tell me the gestures he's using. Is he waving bye-bye? Is he pointing to let you know what he wants? And let me just say too, anytime a parent says a little bit, that means no. <laughs> that means it's not consistently enough for me to even be positive enough to say yes. Now, sometimes parents will say yes when a child is just done maybe you know waved two times and you know had half a clap (laughs) sometimes parents will do that and and again they're not meaning they just don't know they just don't know that a child should be using gestures consistently and so sometimes we will hear that and think there's something off here but again their their way to measure that was totally different than yours you should be saying things like does he wave bye-bye all the time Does she tell me, does she shake her head no every time she doesn't want something? And start using language like that, which really lets a parent know how consistently we uh, need, want, hope, are, gestures are, (laughs) before a child begins to use them communicatively. And uh, Dr. Amy Weatherby has done such good research about this at her uh, website, firstwords.org. And she talks about... And she's also done Autism Navigator, so just such a great set of sites and great information. She says that by 16 months, toddlers with typically developing language skills have at least 16 different gestures to communicate a variety of messages. And 16 gestures is a lot. I mean, when you go back and there's a great handout on her site about that, when you go back and really listen to that and look at that, that just, again, drives the boat for me what I want to work on with a child, you know, it's much more than waving bye-bye. It's much more than teaching pointing, which is really hard, by the way. We've got to get these other things going first. And so we want to talk about this, that uh, how we get this going today. And again, the, the first kinds of things that we talked about reaching up we talked about uh, exchanging that turn taking nonverbal turn taking where we are exchanging an object i'm giving the child an object and the child is giving me an object so we have to really really understand how gestures emerge and support that development i've gotten a little bit ahead of myself though let me get let me talk about a couple of other things first and then we'll get to that um sequential list of how gestures emerge but before that For a toddler to use gestures, he first has to understand gestures. You know, we talked about that last week in imitation. Sometimes we teach that motor imitation piece and then we're kind of layering on top of that, what that gesture means. But honestly, children should be seeing those gestures first and associating meaning because you're doing them. So when you're waving bye bye, that's how they learn what bye bye means. When you are pointing, that's how they learn with joint attention to look. When you are shaking your head, no, 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 no. When they're reaching to pull a leaf off a green plant in your home, they're learning, you know, that means stop. That means don't do that. And so we have to see children watch you use gestures before they can begin to understand what they mean. And so sometimes for parents, I'll notice that. You know, we chatty-patty speech just talk with our hands all the time, right? We Sometimes we're too animated with our hands, right? Or too animated with our facial expressions. And, you know, sometimes my grandchildren will say to me, Mom, just stop making that face. And, you know, it's not that bad. And you think, well, that's just because I, I've learned to over-communicate with my facial expressions here. And so they, they don't want to see all that. But that's what you do when you're teaching a language-delayed toddler. You want to do everything you can to communicate. And so sometimes... I'll notice a parent never gestures. And so that's one of the things that we want to talk about is, hey, you need to be pointing at things all day long. You need to be clapping when they do something great. You need to be waving bye-bye, not just when somebody leaves your home or when you leave, but, you know, things disappear all day long. You need to be waving bye-bye all day to those kinds of things uh, that we need to do. Here's another really great piece of information that's evidence-based. When we're focusing on ways to help a late talker learn how to gesture or a toddler with another known diagnosis that the probability is really, really high that he or she will have a communication delay or disorder, it doesn't really matter exactly what kinds of gestures we use. We just have to use gestures. And that takes the pressure off a lot of parents because they'll say, you know, I don't really point a lot, but boy, I show him stuff all day long. Same thing. Same thing. And so you want to be sure that you were talking to parents about that, not getting them to be so hung up on exactly what they do, just that they do something. We want children to move toward that gestural representation. And so pointing to the object that you're referencing, showing something to a child and saying its name so that they can really hear it. You know, here this would be book. Look at my book. See? Wow look at this book and so you're saying the key word several times and you need to reiterate this with parents of white talkers as therapists and tell them look there's something that's happening with how your child's learning language he or she's not picking it up their regular way and so we have to be really really focused and really intentional about teaching something so when you give them something be sure that you're saying its name don't just say I'm going to say you like this because it's purple You need to say, oh, pen, look, it's my pen, my purple pen. I write with my pen. It's purple, and it's a pen. Do you get my point there? Purple might have been the salient feature that the parent wants to talk about, but they need that noun first. And so be sure that you're talking about that with parents, that they need to say the word and, again, as they're pointing, as they're showing, to really uh, marry, really pair that language with the attention that they're getting their child to uh, demonstrate to that object. So those are the things, pointing and looking. Simple sign language for important items as we say the word. SLPs, we do this all the time. It's kind of our bread and butter. You know, you probably can hardly say the word eat without signing eat or more or another sign that your little friends like. You know, my little guys right now are all into candy. So, you know, you hardly say that word without giving the gestural representation, and kids need to see that. Now, all late talkers don't have to learn how to learn how to sign to talk, but it is a great in-between step for lots and lots of kids. And for some kids, who again, you know, that talking is going to be further off, we need to get an AA system in place. Uh, right now, I'm finishing up a book. It's I've worked on it forever, but I'm oh, I'm almost to the finish line. But it's uh, is it autism workbook? It's called Start Here. So, when you get an autism diagnosis and you are looking at, and this would be the same for any child with a developmental delay, when you know that words just, they're gonna be a little while, it's gonna be a little while before we hear words. We have got to get an AA system in place. And again, signs are a natural extension of this. For children who already know how to gesture. And beyond that, it helps their motor planning. And I've had so many kids who really, we may not even fully say that they have suspected childhood apraxia of speech yet, but we know that motor planning is an issue for them. They have such a difficult time imitating. There are other markers that when we listen to their words, we don't hear very many consonants. Even their vowels are um, distorted or substituted. And so really substituted is the, the What we would hear there for motor planning. And so we know with those kids, oh my goodness, it might be a while before they talk. They need an AAC system. And so it might be signs like we're talking about today with that natural extension of gestures, but for some kids it's pictures. For some kids it's a speech generating device. So be sure as SLPs that you're thinking about that and you're thinking about communication and you're really using our evidence based practice here with. When there's going to be a lag in what a child can express, wants to express, and what they're gonna be able to say, get another system in place. All right, so that's my soapbox for that for today. Uh, Let's get back here to gestures. Um, Research says that performing any action relevant to the object works too. So in the absence of sign language, if you're gonna talk about a car, and let's say that you're a parent listening, what would you think the sign for car is? Well, you would just pantomime driving, right? Exactly. Or a choo-choo train, what would you do? You would whoo woo. You would pull that whistle, right? And so even as a parent today, you're thinking, I don't know any sign language. She's telling me that I've got to use gestures. Just pick something. Pick something that matches, sort of looks like, like uh, what the object would do, which the function of the object. And so like with the pen... If you're talking about a pen, you might write. If you're talking about a cup, you're going to pretend that you're holding a cup to drink. And so those are great too. And so think about that. Just making sure that you are using lots and lots of gestures for the child to see so that he can start to associate that. Now, when we're using these gestures, we want to use them frequently, but then you've got to transfer that from you to them. So how do you get a child to begin to use gestures? The best piece of advice is just wait a little bit. And so, again, that's super hard for us as therapists and as parents. You know, we want to jump in there and fill in. But a lot of times when you don't know what a child wants, if you'll just say, what, show me, tell me, a lot of times you will (coughs) get a point or get an eye gaze or get a reach or get something. And then do you know what they do after they do that? They start to look back at you. And what is that? That's social referencing. That's joint attention. And that is very communicative. And so we want that. So a lot of times we do just have to wait a little bit for a child to um, jump in to be able to get a need met non-verbally. And again, this doesn't happen with lots of parents. Lots of parents, frankly, are so distracted by their phones or their tablets (coughs) or whatever else that they're doing that they, they miss, oh my goodness, they miss all these great gestures that their kids do. And sometimes you'll have to say, oh, did you see that? Oh, oh you know, that you're really encouraging them to put that phone down and watch because their child is doing all kinds of great things that he or she may not be getting credit for. And so you want to really point that out with parents. And parents who are reflexively indulgent and hyper-nurturing do this a lot. I mean, they they just kind of jump in way too much. And we're not saying, you know, withhold everything and wait till the child communicates. We're not saying that, but we're saying wait a little bit and give a child an opportunity to do something because sometimes that's all it really takes. It's just that little, that nudge of not even exactly frustration, just an opportunity to be able to communicate there. Now let's talk about something that um, happens With children with autism, and this is a marker we see a lot, is that I'll ask a parent, does a child have a gesture to let you know what he wants, and then they start talking to me about, yes, he pulls me to everything. Now, leading and pulling like that is very purposeful, and it is a gesture, and it is fantastic, because when we have kids who are on the spectrum who aren't doing that, that's one of the first things I try to teach them how to do, because it is communicative, and I like it, but... (laughs) <coughs> we have to look at the difference in the social connectedness of kids who do this. If a kid is pulling you to the kitchen and they're saying ah 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 mama ah ah and they're looking right at you with this little fa- that little face like please get in here and get me this. That's totally different than a toddler who just reaches out, grabs your hand and pulls you without ever looking at that arm and looking at your face. And so you need to be sure that you're thinking about that and talking about that and again, I'm not saying that it's bad, or it's just a marker, it's a marker, and so we have to increase that social interaction, so what I do when a child is trying to leave me like that is really position myself so that he has to look at my face, and so I get down on his level, and when he's trying to pull me, I'm still going, and sometimes I might, you know, do a little hesitancy to see if he'll pull harder or try to push me or whatever they're going to do, which is fine, because again, they're communicating but we've got to position ourselves within their line of vision when they're leading us so that they get that social interaction piece. You might say something like, what? What do you want? Where are we going? And again, that's to draw that child's attention to you, to get him to look at you not just as the big hand who does something for him, who he might even take your hand to try to operate a toy. And typically developing toddlers don't do that. They use eye contact. They use other kinds of gestures. And so when we see leading as the only gesture, we're glad we've got it. But we know that we've got to do something more than that to really help communication uh, become purposeful. And I'll just tell you, I don't really start with gestures with those kids. A lot of people do. I back up a little bit and start with hand motions with songs because it's a little bit easier. Or start with just some... Dr. Paul, Raya Paul, has some great uh, research with rapid motor imitation with actions. And she says (coughs) that she gets that kind of, that, you know, she gets that going first, just that imitation piece, before we start to make it highly communicative because we want them to imitate that motor piece. And so I think about that, and then I think about what I was talking about with social games. I want to make gestures in social games really meaningful. So if a kid likes playing Ring Around the Roses with me... I am going to sit on the floor until he pulls me up for the next turn. You know, after, you know, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. We're on the floor, and I've dropped his hands, and I'm sitting there. I want him to come over and grab my hand and pull me up. And, again, that's different than him trying to lead me to another part of the house or whatever. I mean, that's still good, too. But at the same time, he's looking at me, and we're going to do something immediate right after that because he's pulled me up. And so we want to think about that. At the beginning of Ring Around the Roses, when I'm teaching it, I reach out and grab their hands, but after they know the game, and if they are really excited and like it, and you can tell they want to do it again, don't reach right out and grab their hands yet. Maybe maybe even hold your hands out, but hold them back a little bit. So they've got to do that extra effort to make that intentional and purposeful on their parts. And so um, do that hold back a little bit and see what they'll do. Or another game like um patty cake or something you know you might just kind of sit poised to see if a child will reach over and try to clap your hands or if he starts to clap his hands too to get those little things going or if you're going to row row your boat on your legs with him or if he's going to you know do it kind of straight legged and you rock his whole little body which is what one of my little friends is doing right now you wait a little bit. You might hold your hands out, but you see if they're going to grab your hands and start the rocking. And so you want them to initiate that. So those motor actions with social games are so, so important. And because they become meaningful and they they know right away, <coughs> excuse me, they know right away that, they, that you know what they mean and that they're doing something purposeful. And again, you know, you, we're talking about this, you know, this is like metacognition. When you talk about what you, how you learn stuff or what you know. This is the same thing with language with gestures kids then kids realize oh yeah if I want her up I better I better hold her hands I better reach out and get her hands and pull her she's not going to do it unless I do that and so they start to learn how to use their little bodies and remember we talked about that turns into symbolism and that representational movement. And that's what words are. It's just a representation of what that object or that event or that emotion or action, whatever that is. It's that word is a symbol. So the gesture becomes that symbol first. All right. So we've sort of talked about the prerequisites. Now let's talk about how gestures emerge and how we as SLPs and parents can teach these gestures because it's It's great to know, hey, gestures are important. Hey, I better see gestures before I I expect to hear words. Hey, it's a problem because he doesn't understand it because he's not linking meaning. Hey, I better model these gestures so that he can see it. Oh, I better give him a little bit of time. It's great to have those five or six things that I just rattled off, which were the first six things that we've reviewed here in the show. But, Unless you know how to take it to the next level, (laughs) which is actually teaching how these gestures emerge and how you target that and how you really, really work on it in therapy, it doesn't really matter very much. So let's talk about how you teach gestures. And again, this is based on a developmental model. So this is how gestures emerge and this is how. We do it. This is how we work on it in therapy. And so we understand that reaching emerges first. And we talked about this comes really, really early in uh, typically developing babies like that four to six month level. They instinctively be- to be- begin to reach for things that they want as their motor coordination improves. A late talker with gross motor delays may not be doing this yet. And again, this would be your most significantly affected. Sweeties, your kiddos that you're working with on your caseload, or as a parent, your little one who has another medical diagnosis. Those are the kids that you might have to uh, really, really work on reaching. And you're gonna do that by setting things just out of reach. Like if their little hands can get it, you're just gonna hold it. You're not gonna give everything to them. You're gonna give them an opportunity. And again, you're not clear across the room setting up some impossible expectation, you were just right there so that you always want them doing the next little part, the next little part, the next little part. And so that's how reaching emerges. And if a kid can do that, can reach, boy, you go right into choices where you're holding up two different things that you know that they might want and having them really, really reach for that. And so some kids, again, you'll have to really start with an eye gaze, particularly if they have like we talked about before, significant motor issues. But when they're just looking at it, you're going to teach them that the power of using their little bodies to communicate is so effective that this, again, sets the stage for communication. They know they have to do something to get something. And so we want to do that. And so um, a lot of times with the kid, we're, we're going to have to use some hand-over-hand assistance to teach him how to do this. And so as you're holding up two things, if he's, if you're holding, And you know that he probably wants the pen, and you're holding the pen closer to him, and then he doesn't reach out to get the pen. You may have to set your other item down, reach over, grab his hand, and help him get the pen from you. And some of that hand-over-hand assistance, we we devalue that. We say, oh, that's too intrusive. Oh, I don't want to do that. Oh, I want to wait and see if he'll do it. Oh, he's tactile-sensitive. He's tactile-defensive. I don't really want to do that. Okay. 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 All those things. (laughs) You've got to provide that hand over hand direct teaching. And I think that's what's missing so much in so many of our therapy programs right now. We've all gotten to the point where we've just this consultative model, we're just letting it ruin us. Because we are not really teaching parents how to do things anymore. We're saying, what would you do? How would you teach this? Why are you even there? (laughs) You know, I mean, I am all for I mean, I have learned so much from parents. So parents teach me every day that I see a parent. They're teaching me something I did not know. But at the same time, they need you and they need your clinical expertise. So don't be afraid to help them as they're walking through that process or to say, well, here's how I teach it. You know, if, they, if, if they're at a loss or you have a parent who's really shutting down because you're just trying to pull teeth over there and they are obviously not biting when you're asking them your questions that are great, and you want their participation, but at the same time, don't torture a parent (laughs) by not giving information. Jump in there and say, this is how we teach it. And so, again, that direct teaching, that hand-over-hand assistance, don't be afraid to do that. Okay, so that was the second part, with uh, how gestures emerge. We did reaching, and then we did choices where they're going to reach out and make a choice between two things. And showing and giving emerge next. And so again, we talked about this with turn taking, that that is such an important part of language development, learning how to give you something and get something. And kids, we do this all the time when we work on give me that. If they're sitting holding a block, you know, that's one of the first kind of receptive language targets that we do with holding our hand out and saying, you know, give me that or can I have one or give that to me or whatever we say. Because we want a child to take whatever he's holding and put it in our hand. And then again, like we talked about back with pre-linguistic skill number three. We're going to do that a lot with children who are not very social because they don't naturally get that. They don't have that underlying drive to communicate with you and to take turns with you and share with you like that, share that experience. And I don't mean share as in two kids sharing a toy. I mean that joint experience there. And so that showing and giving routines, those are so important. And so back in, when we talked about joint attention, that prelinguistic skill number five, We talked about the show, hold, and give routines where we teach a child how to show us things and how to give us things, and so that would be like if you were changing his diaper, you would give him the diaper to hold. You would show him and say, oh, we're going to change your diaper now. It's time to change your diaper, and so, and then, you know, you've got him on his back because you're going to change his diaper, but you're letting him hold the clean diaper, so you're showing it to him, and then you give it to him to hold while you get ready Uh, Clean him up so that you get ready for the uh, clean diaper. And then you're holding your hand out and you're saying, oh, give it to me. It's time to put your diaper on now. I need your clean diaper. And so if he doesn't help you put it in his hand, you reach over the hand-over-hand assistance that we just talked about, and have him put it in your hand, and then you use it. And so those are show-hold-give routines, where he's learns, I'm going to hold something for a little bit, you're going to give it to me, I'm going to hold it, and then I'm going to give it right back. And so again, that promotes turn-taking, it promotes showing with joint attention, and it promotes using gestures. So by that little routine, he worked on three or four really important prelinguistic linguistic skills. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to that show, or it's all right here in this therapy manual. So let's talk about talking. It's huge. It's 337 pages of the 11 prelinguistic skills that all toddlers master before words emerge, and it's where all this information for this podcast series has come from. So learn about those show, hold, give routines. All right, so then let's move on to some other gestures. After we've done reaching and reaching intentionally for choices and showing and giving, we uh, the research by Dr. Weatherby says that kids learn two new gestures per month between nine and 16 months. And so let's talk about some other options. We've mentioned clapping and what a great gesture that is. Kids love it because they are just as crazy about praise as we are. So clapping is a great one, and you can do it at the ends of routines, or you can do it when they've done something great. You know, as therapists, we have little our little friends on our caseload train that when they do something great, we clap. And so when, they don't, when we don't clap, they often look at us like, what? And you know, we'll start to clap like, aren't you going to clap for me? And I love it when they're doing that because they certainly understand what gestures mean then. And they're communicating with me like, Laura, you forgot. I need to hear my clapping. And so that's a great one. <coughs> we talked about reaching up to be picked up and how to facilitate that. You just talk to a mom about every time I want you reaching down. And if you have to give little cues under his arms to help him do that, and you know, you don't do it at the hand level, do it so his arms are really holding his arms up Uh, dancing to music is a great first little gesture a lot of babies and toddlers instinctively do that so if you don't have that going that's kind of an easy one to get going give me fingers where a kid is reaching for an object and is opening and closing his or her little hands we talked about shaking your head for yes and nodding your head for yes and shaking it for no pushing a toy away or a person when he's finished and some parents will say oh that's so rude i don't want to teach him that It's much better for him to do that than to throw something or to um, uh, go into full meltdown mode because he doesn't know how to turn his head away and put his hand out and say no. So you can teach those little things too. And again, it relieves communication frustration, and we will always want to give kids an outlet. And here's the thing about these gestures. You use gestures all the time, all day long, even as an adult who is a fully competent communicator. And so kids need those too. And so we're teaching lifelong skills here. Other gestures, patting, tapping, or tugging an adult to gain attention is a good one. So when, you know, I'll see this a lot with a little friend, even when I'm talking to his mom, and this is the kid who's already talking and doing pretty well, like at the end when we're they're getting ready to leave our uh, beautiful lobby here, and we're standing at the door just a little bit too long, and you'll see a kid kind of tap on mom or pull on their jacket or something like, hey, did you forget about me? That's a great one there. Uh, A game like Gimme Five is a great one. A gesture like, ta-da, when they've done something great. Or uh, if you're in a football-crazy family, touchdown is a really cute gesture for a kid to do. Saying shh for quiet, and I love to pair that with uh, teaching a kid how to play night-night. And let me just share this real quick. If you don't know how to play this game, it is so good. And it is often one of the first kinds of... um, consistent attention and consistent participation that I'll get with a little friend is teaching that social game night-night and has so many great gestures in it so first you're going to you know and that this is just that you're pretending to go to sleep and toddlers think this is hysterical and so if I had a friend here I could do it like this but honestly guys most often I just lay out on the floor (laughs) they think it's so funny when a big old grown-up person you know puts themselves completely flat on the floor so I just I just you know put myself on the floor and lie down there and I uh, have my have my eyes closed. And I'll say, "Oh, I'm gonna go night night. I'm going night night. Watch, watch." And so then I close my eyes and I say "shh." And so that's a gesture right there. And then you pretend to snore shh, "shh shh shh" and do your shoulders up and down and make it pretty dramatic. And you know, open your eyes a little bit like you're peeking. And then you say, "Oh, is it time to wake up? Let's count one, two, three. Wake up, wake up." and, you know, do a big, make a big production about sitting up and shaking your hands and, you know, shaking your head and being kind of crazy right there. That's great because you've taught the little, you know, you're going to lay down, lie down on the floor. You're closing your eyes. You're doing your shh. You're doing your little snore thing with your shoulders, then you're going to count with your little numbers, your little fingers to represent those numbers, then you're going to jump up and wave real big. And so look at that, those five or six different gestures that you've loaded in that one game. And again, kids love it. I mean, it is just a universal winner. So that might be a way that if you haven't even worked on gestures with kids, that you start to get that going today. And I gave you all those other examples uh, earlier in the show with other little social games like row row your boat and ring around the rosies and patty cake and the other things we talked about that's how we get gestures going is in the context of those little games it's not always put something high up on a shelf so that they have to go over and point I mean that works too (coughs) excuse me but more often than not you got to back it up and make it pretty social in the context of that game another great early gesture is blowing kisses when kids are leaving I had to go bye bye, and I love that. I think that's so sweet. I have a couple. I have one little girl right now that I mentioned earlier that just does a lip smack for that because uh, she's got gross global gross motor delays and she can't use her hands as effectively. But boy, she can smack those little lips. And other kids are really really into uh, blowing kisses. So great, sweet little gesture to teach. A thumbs up for approval. That's a harder one to do, but sometimes kids like it. Knuckle bumps are a good one. Kind of you sort of want maybe you want to pair that would give me five and you know move on to something uh like with a fist bump so that they uh are sequencing a couple gestures and that's another really important thing is to really get that motor imitation piece going where they're waving bye bye and blowing kisses or whether they're uh, again pairing two different things maybe shaking their head no and then putting their hand out to refuse it so those Uh, gestural pairing is super, super important too. When a kid will look at me and like maybe pat me on the leg and then point to what they want. I love that. And so try to kind of facilitate those things too. Even in kids who who are already gesturing with you and you say, oh, well, he's got that. That might be something you do this week in your visit with them as a therapist. Can I get them to combine gestures here? Because those are two different ideas and you can see how that's that next little cognitive step up or that next little language development up. Um... Other kinds of things. Oh, stinky is a good one. If you have a stinky diaper, go in there. Hands out for where. Where did something go? That's kind of a universal sign for I can't find it. Will you help me look for it? Where did it go? Um, anything like that is, it are going to be great gestures. And, again, if you've not been to uh, Amy Weatherby's firstwords.org, she's got some great things. Or you could even search 16 gestures by 16 months, and uh, her site would come up. Now, we've talked about how hard it is to teach pointing and I did a whole show on pointing but I sort of want to just run through this right now because it's so important that kids learn how to point. And we test children by learning how to point. You know, in a book when we say, you know, all of our standardized testing is show me the baby, show me the shoe, which boy is running, which boy is sleeping. You know that pointing behavior is really, really important. Not only, not only, I mean, it's certainly more important in everyday life, but we certainly, um, just think about how often we have to use and teach gestures, even academically. So pointing is super, super um, hard for some of our little guys to master. And so we always begin with reaching, and we, uh, with working with them with reaching, and then holding things a little further back. We have to teach them, though, to isolate their index fingers. But before we can ev- even do that, we need to be modeling pointing all day long so that they can really see us pointing at things. And again, we talked about sometimes that physical movement is hard to really teach. And so you do want to play with toys that facilitate that isolation of the index finger. So something like a toy piano or uh, as a parent, if you're listening to me right now and you're thinking, isolation of the index finger, what is this lady talking about? (laughs) You've got to just teach them how to use a toy (laughs) with one finger. So something where they have to point, something where that... like a pop and pals toy, where there are any kind of toy with a lever or a switch. And some kids will naturally want to do it with all their fingers, but really see if you can get that one little point. A therapy trick is to put like a, a dot there, a garage sale sticker. You know what I'm talking about? Those little round circle stick, circular stickers to do that. Sometimes on some of my toys, if I have a marker, I'll just draw a dot and see if I can get a kid to touch the dot there. There's a great book called Touch the Dot <coughs> that a lot of kids like. It doesn't, it has a lot of kind of Complicated directions, and the more typically developing a child is, the more that book will be appealing to them. Because our little guys who really struggle with receptive language delays are not going to get that book, but it's they won't understand it. But it's it's a good one. Other things that I do are really just tapping my finger. I've got short nails right now, so you can't hear it as well. But um, tapping your finger so that they really they've got the auditory cue there, and a lot of kids will start to do that. Like is that if if we're looking at pictures and books and we're on a puzzle I'm really tapping that picture or tapping that puzzle piece and a lot of times kids will start to do it and a lot of our little guys with that are uncoordinated will again reach with their whole hand and they'll even you know try to do it with their thumbs or something just do your best I know we're not OTs but do your best to help them do it with this finger a lot of times I do just do the old school way and just kind of grab their hands and squish their fingers and put their pointer out and again some of our OT friends might freak out about that but my old school OT friends would say, yeah, that's how we do it. (laughs) That's how we do it. Other things might be teaching with Play-Doh or Silly Putty or something like that where they are really making holes with their index fingers. That's a really fun thing to do. Um, Any kind of toy with a hole. I have a cool hedgehog right now that you might have seen it. It has little holes and it's kind of a counting toy and a color toy. So I use it, though, (laughs) for teaching pointing and for kids, of course, that fine motor coordination piece. So anything with a hole where your kids can stick their fingers in there, help them do that. Uh, Of course, the song, where is thumpkin, but where is pointer? And then in Teach Me to Play With You, if you have that therapy manual of mine, there's a cute little song called Two Little Blackbirds that I'll sing a lot with kids who are starting to point. Or if you are a Jesus person like me, you may be singing This Little Light of Mine. So great, great um, song to teach that pointing and get that little index finger isolated. You've also got to teach the power of pointing. And so once a child begins to point physically, you've got to reinforce it like you've never done before. And I worked with this great family in Owensboro a couple years ago that their little guy was almost five and not talking. And One of the things they did, we worked on gestures first, and one of the things they did is they really would put things he wanted in the middle of the table, and they would say... You've got to show me. What do you want? I don't even know. And he started with a reach. And then, boy, his point got really, really good. And he had a little brother that pointed a lot. And so they really started using his brother as a model. And his, his mom is a speech pathologist. So she, of course, took these ideas and just ran with them. But pointing, you've got to, again, as soon as they point towards something or reach towards something, you've got to reinforce it really, really quickly because then they understand, aha, that was it. That's what I did to get this. <coughs> to get this um item that I really really wanted one family that I worked with a long time ago oh goodness they were so fun and that little boy is actually in um my first dvd teach me to talk they had this game called dance puppet and these were again just oh gosh super super fun parents mom was in medical school and dad um Dad stayed home a lot and ran a bike shop and so that they didn't have to do daycare. So a really, really committed family. And so they called it, when, when he wasn't doing gestures, we talked about this, but they called it dance puppet. And so whatever they wanted, <laughs> whenever they wanted their child, and this game is in, uh, let's talk about talking. Whenever they wanted their child to do something, they would uh, help their child, they would help that little boy point to the puppet and then, they would do something crazy. And so they called it Dance Puppet because when he first learned how to do it, he would point and dad would just do some kind of crazy dancing. And then they changed it to jumping and screaming and blowing kisses. So they did a lot of gestures. And I'm going to tell you, they led that little boy to fantastic play sound imitation because they started to fake cough. They started to sneeze. They did a lot of, you know, ho, ho, ho. It was around Christmas time when I saw them. And did a lot of uh, Santa laughing, ho-ho laughing that we called it. So anything like that. So when you, my point is this. You've got to make pointing very, very purposeful and intentional. You've got to reward the heck out of it so that a child will learn how to do it. So that game is in let's talk about talking too, and so I wanted to mention that as well, and this book is great too because, well, let's just review a couple more strategies, and then I'll kind of finish with what else you can do with this book, so we talked about the power of pointing, and we didn't really talk about sign language today, I alluded to it, but we're we're almost out of time, so we're not going to get to do a lot of talking about it, but with sign language, it really is the ultimate gesture, and so Go back and watch those shows on sign language. I have a couple of different ones. And even last show, number 394, where we talk about that progression of why signs are so important. And we talked about with a lot of our little friends, teaching that motor action, that motor imitation really drives that speech motor component as well. So, but certainly something that you're uh, going to want uh, to do. And again, there are right ways and wrong ways to teach sign language. So go back and listen to that show think it's show 385 but I might be wrong about that it may be it, it just go back and look you can find it at teach me to talk or there on YouTube as you're scrolling through but it's it's there are two shows about sign language so go back and look at those shows because it's really, really important that we don't screw up and do things that are ineffective. And the most important thing is when we're teaching children sign language, is that we don't start too early when they're not developmentally ready. And so, back in those shows, and even in the last show, I talked about the prerequisites for teaching a child how to sign. And so, you've got to see some other motor actions first. And he's got to have attention to you first. So, go back and listen to those prerequisites because if you're trying to teach signs, if you've been working with a little guy or your own child for weeks or, gosh, months on sign language and you're not getting anywhere, it's because he's not ready. So you've got to back up and teach those prerequisites. And the biggest prerequisite is this motor imitation piece, like we talked about today. So you're teaching him how to clap. You're teaching him to pick, raise up his arms to be when you want to pick him up. You're teaching him to grab your hands to play a little game with you. And you're teaching him to give five. You're teaching him to fist bump. You're teaching him to shake his head yes and no. So these are the things that come first. And so once a kid can do that then you move on to teaching sign language. And remember we talked about how it's such an important uh, piece with AAC, just such an important system. And it doesn't matter again, I like signs because they're portable, but it is kind of a pain if someone else doesn't know the sign you're teaching. So look at that and kind of make that assessment about whether this this child is really, really ready for sign language or whether you need to back off that. And again, let me just say for evidence-based practice, children with autism, aren't going to be great candidates for signs because their motor planning is not great. 63% of kids with autism also have apraxia. And because it's here, they often have motor planning problems here too. So they have kind of a global dyspraxia issue going on. That's why they might have trouble with handwriting. That's why things like climbing might be difficult for them or coordinating their bodies to do jumping jacks, those kinds of things. So Think about those things too. Is this child going to be ready to sign developmentally? And if he's not, use another AAC part of that. But you've still got to teach these gestures. And for kids who are on the spectrum, this is one of the core diagnostic features of autism is that they don't use gestures. And so that means these gestures are going to be hard- And you have got to double down, and you've got to make them as meaningful as possible. And so you still may not be teaching signs, which would be that extension of gestures, but they do still need to learn joint attention. They do need to learn how to show and give an object. They do need to learn how to point to what they want. It's got to be beyond that initial leading piece that we talked about usually is a kid with autism or red flags for autism. That's usually their go-to gesture. And so we want to think about that and think about how we can help. Develop those other gestures and get those going too. Let me say too, um, be patient and be persistent with this. And kids who are struggling to learn gestures, again, there's usually a lot more going on just than they won't do it. And so you have to think about that can't versus won't piece. This really is a can't, and so there's either a motor problem or there's a co- meaning they can't physically do it, or there's a cognitive problem, meaning that they haven't linked. Meaning with they don't understand that waving their hand is bye-bye. They just haven't made that connection yet. Or again, there's a social problem. They're not watching you well enough or interacting with you well enough to see you do the gesture to be able to imitate that or that core imitation piece just isn't there. And so it's a lot more than language, and it's a lot more than, I just don't want to do it. I'm just being a little stubborn toddler here. It's that they really can't do it. So it's a big marker when we see kids who are past the 12-month level who aren't using gestures. That's a red flag for language delay. So as a speech-language pathologist, you need to pay close attention to this. And this is one of the very first things you should be asking a parent is not how many words does this kid have, But how many gestures does he use? And then if if he's not gesturing, close the book. You got your first goal. (laughs) You know what you need to work on because that's how important gestures are for language development. All right, we are out of time. I told you I'd tell you what else is in this book. And let's talk about talking great uh, games that we talked about, Dance Puppet and the Night Night Game, other little games that I use to teach gestures. The other thing that I did is there's a great section in here, teach me to sign with snacks, teach me to sign with toys, and teach me to sign with social games. And then there's also a section on troubleshooting. So if you are having difficulty teaching gestures, get yourself a copy of this book and teach yourself some new strategies because it will really, really help you. All right, that's all for today. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and thank you so much for joining me for teachmetotalk.com's podcast.